listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to today's episode of ACB Advocacy Update. I am your host, Swatha Nanda Kumar, ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. So today's topic, we are joined by Mr. Mark Reigert um, from the... Association of Education and Professionals, professionals, I think. That's what that, yeah, that term. I mean, AER is called it. Um, and we are here today to talk about a very important bill that's been introduced introduced, introduced this month, which is the Cogswell Macy Act. Hi, Mark, how are you? Hello. Good to, good to say hello to you and talk to you about one of my favorite things to talk about. Yeah, I bet you've been involved. You've been involved in this bill for for quite a while. Yeah, at least since the Punic Wars, I think uh, <laughs> it feels like it. So. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's been so, a while. It's yeah, a while. yeah. So can you kind of go into? So can you kind of um, talk about what this bill is and what it does for you know blind children and students? Sure. So I, I appreciate such a blank check of, of a question because that means I can just. <laughs> Say whatever I want, by golly. Um, right. So really, the way that we've all been describing this, and when I say we, I mean, it's definitely been a blindness and vision impairment, blindness and low vision world group effort from day one. Uh, this uh, is a really the bill is the most comprehensive special education reform legislation to be put before the Congress since we've had a major federal special education law in this country, which we used to refer to as 94-142. And the reason why we refer to it by that number is because it was the 94th Congress that enacted that law and, uh, in 1975. And, of course, we're in the 118th Congress now, so there you go. Uh, it's been a good long while. And that law, which I think at the time was called the Education of All Handicapped Children Act, I think, something like that, if I don't have it exactly right. But you can even tell from the name of that law, use of the word handicap, that it was quite, you know, dated. And in the 1970s, it was pretty, you know, progressive stuff at the time. And it, the primary purpose of that law was to make sure that all kids with disabilities uh, right to be educated in their neighborhood schools was honored and that the neighborhood schools would be held accountable for providing decent services to all kids with disabilities. So that's a noble goal. In a lot of ways, we've largely met that. Certainly every kid with a disability has a right to receive education in their neighborhood school. Uh, but the real question becomes, once you kick open the school door, what kind of education, and in this particular instance, what kind of special education is that child receiving once she or he gets in that school door? So, this piece of legislation comes along after, you know, many years since 1975 and after several times when the U.S. Congress has revised and amended it and tried to streamline, in some cases, in other ways, toughen that special education law, which today we call the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act uh, or IDEA or IDEA. I, I've, I don't know. Uh, I was not there a little bit before my time when they came up with that, I think in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, but whoever came up with that acronym, uh, IDEA or IDEA for 
the name of a special education law. Uh, it was clearly he had spent some creative time at the bar or <laughs> had or had some really good friends because it's a, you know it's a clever it's a clever uh, little little acronym. But IDEA, you know, uh, every time it's been updated like that or reviewed, that's in congressional you know jargon they refer to that as a reauthorization. So the Congress has to authorize a program, and then they fund that program under appropriations legislation. So getting the money is under a whole separate process, but you authorize these programs with a law like IDEA, and then they put a time limit on it. And they say, you know, we've authorized this program to exist for whatever, five, six, seven years. And then at the end of that period of time, Congress is supposed to, uh, the program expires or would expire, and the Congress has to come along and uh, update it, review it, and decide that they want to keep it, keep it going, or maybe they might just let it fade away. Unfortunately, since 2004, which was the last time when Congress did a major reauthorization of IDEA, that that is really the last time that any you know significant changes have been made to the special ed law in this country. Sure, there have been a little twenty years. No, wow. yeah, I mean it's it's craziness, and and uh, you know there have been a little nibbles around the edges, but that was really the last time. So you know, you and I were joking at the beginning of this that you know. Good grief. It's been a long time since we've been talking about uh, the Cogswell Macy bill. And that's true. I mean, yours truly <laughs> took, took a, took a week hit under a, hit under a rock. I think, I think it was the second week in September of 2011, I think. And, and just like hammered out all the blindness provisions. Now when I say I did it, I mean, my contribution is the legislative drafting of it, but I mean, all the ideas that are in this thing are the result and you do this work, Swatha, professionally, so you know all too well about this. I mean, it's a lot of negotiating with other people in the field, bringing all of the researchers and the university folk together, hearing directly from consumers, obviously, and working with uh, frontline professionals, teachers in particular, to make sure that what we're proposing is exactly reflective of the needs uh, that parents are identifying, that uh, professionals are seeing every day, when they do their work and that all of it reflects uh, and builds upon a body of knowledge and the best research available. So <clears throat> all of that work had happened prior to this mid-September 2011 thing. And then yours truly hammered it all out. And then of course that began a new round of shopping it around to say, okay, well now we have this language. Do you think this reflects what is really going on and could you organization X support it? And so that took a little while, and then the bill finally got introduced by Congressman Cartwright, Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania, uh, among others, but he was our lead. Uh, we actually did a really cool thing. First time our, the blindness field ever really did something like this, a national call-in day uh, where we literally had people calling an 800 number that automatically connected them up with their members of Congress. This happened on June 27, uh, 2013 which not only happens to be my birthday, but is also uh, uh, Helen Keller's, the anniversary of Helen Keller's birth, which is, you know, it's maybe gimmicky, but it's the reason that we used to do it on that day. And just literally cold calling members of Congress, the bill hadn't been introduced yet. The message was, hey, here's this draft bill we have. Here's a website that explains what it's all about. We'd love to talk with you, sir, madam, or your staff about maybe introducing this thing. And uh, we got a few bites and Congressman Cartwright was the one that came through for us. Uh, when I you know, first had this idea of maybe doing a, 
national call-in day like this. I, I really didn't think anything was going to come up, come of it. I thought it would be a neat test to see, you know, how our field might show up and how organized we could be to, to do something like that. We had over 1,500 contacts with Capitol Hill on that day, which for the blindness system was pretty good. But we also had a bit of a secret weapon, which was partnership with our friends in the deafness and hard of hearing world, who, as we were developing this legislation, they said, hey, uh, maybe we'd like to be a part of something like this as well. And so our friends at National Association of the Deaf and the Deaf Schools Administrators Group uh, and a couple of others got together with us. And so we worked all that out. And then February 2014 is when the bill was introduced for the first time. And then I'll kind of fast forward now. Over time, we had Senate sponsors for a Senate version. And yet again, Mr. Ed Markey, who's such a, I mean, there's just nobody, nobody does it better. Uh, Senator Markey is just so faithful uh, to the blindness and deafness worlds. And, uh, and so uh, he, uh, joined by his colleague, Shelley Moore Capito, a senator from, Republican senator from West Virginia, have been the co-leads on the Senate bill since we introduced it. And along the way, folks from the deaf blindness community said, hey, you guys can't have all the fun in blindness and deafness. We want to be part of it, too. And we said, of course, love to have as much people in this effort as possible because we're going to need as many friends as we can to move it forward. But Swatha, that was all like in the, you know, almost what, 10, 9, 8, 7 years ago. And the real frustrating thing is that all of this time, Congress has completely turned its back uh, on so many things, but in this particular instance, on moving anything forward relating to special education uh, changes at the federal level. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, no matter what side one comes down on in terms of who you like in Congress, the Dems or the R's, uh, there are people on all sides of the special education issue who are spooked by the notion that whomever happens to be in charge might uh, want to open up the special ed law and put things in it uh, that we all wouldn't like. And so there are lots of people who would say, for heaven's sake, don't touch IDEA because we're fearful of what people might put in there. I, you know, I think a lot of us are with every passing month or, or maybe even now year or day are getting less and less patient uh, with that attitude. I mean, surely we have learned a few things as a country or certainly as a disability community about what kids with disabilities need and how the current system has some pretty significant shortcomings. So that's why we keep pushing uh, for this bill and hope that even though now this bill has been reintroduced and the likelihood is, you know, as a bill, it's going to sort of sit up there and likely not make its way to the president's desk on its own, that just as it has stood for our principles all these years, that maybe this then becomes a roadmap for Congress to use to, over the course of time, take various pieces of it and try to move it through other <coughs> legislative vehicles that may come around every now and then. And certainly when it comes to not authorizing legislation like this, but spending legislation, the so-called appropriations uh, legislation, maybe we can uh, make use of that process to talk about directing funding in various ways or the activities of the U.S. Department of Education to hopefully advance the agenda. And we can talk about, you know, specific provisions of the bill 
uh, here in a second. But this latest bill uh, version that was introduced in September, um, and you were going to ask me about the bill number, and of course now I'm having a middle age moment. Hopefully you have the numbers. I'm <laughs> I'm now blanking on them uh, because there've been so many. Oh, that's going to be my excuse. We've had so many bill numbers that I don't want to blurt out the wrong one. So I apologize for that. But uh, in any case, uh, you know it's certainly easy enough to find, and people who know ACB will know how to track down uh, the bill numbers as individual ACB members and friends and chapters start to work on this. But the bill that was introduced last September is sort of a, it's everything that we've been talking about in this bill for years and some really kind of cool new upgrades and improvements because this was a good opportunity, we thought, uh, as the bill gets reintroduced to um, see how we could improve on what we had done uh, over the years. So we're not resting on our laurels. Nice. Nice. I mean, we can definitely definitely put the bill numbers in the show notes after after fact too. I don't... Yeah, great. Yeah. Okay. It must be it must be really, really fitting really fitting, fitting for you to have a birthday of Helen Keller there. <laughs> well, I, I my parents took great pains to arrange for that. They <laughs> it was it it was remarkable. Uh, you know how many classes they had to go to, and uh, you know what rituals needed to be performed to to pull that off. So, but they worked really hard at it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so you mentioned getting to getting getting to the weeds of the bill. What does the bill do in particular for, for blind students or for deaf students or deaf students? Sure. So I'll do a couple of things that are true for everybody, and then I'll focus on some of the blindness specific stuff. So probably you know a big piece. If someone said, you know, can you know the bill is big? Uh, I think it's well over thirty pages now. Uh, if you were to print it out. Uh, yeah, but you know what? Is there one thing that you could say would be the most important thing that this bill does? That would really be tough for me because while I do not have any kids of my own, I certainly can imagine this and those friends and colleagues of mine who do have kids. I know this is true. It's like uh, you're not supposed to have favorite kids, and even if you do have your, you know, if one of your kids is your favorite, you're not really allowed to talk about it. So, you know, it's, it would be hard for me, right, because all of the provisions in there, you say, they're all really super important. But realistically, um, one thing that the bill does for each of the three communities that it represents and tries to serve, uh, blindness, deafness, and deafblindness, um, and, and sort of a macro issue is the fact that all of these kids uh, are more often than not, because of their other disabilities that they may very well have, are today put in disability categories other than their blindness or deafness or deaf blindness. So a kiddo who's got uh, low vision, but who also is dealing with, let's say, cerebral palsy or perhaps an intellectual or developmental disability, uh, or even, you know, uh, other health conditions, right? Just complex health stuff uh, going on with kiddo. Uh, more often than not, people might say, even if it's politically incorrect to put it this way, wow, uh, this kid's vision loss is the least of her problems, right? That there are other things going on. And so they literally categorize these kids as having uh, multiple disabilities or they put them under another specific disability category, thinking that while they're prepared to acknowledge the vision loss, they're not really going to, you know, th that's not the greatest concentration of need and if they have to pick a category that would not be the first choice and the law is pretty clear that just because you do that 
just because somebody chooses to put a kiddo in a specific category, that's not supposed to be the end of the story when it comes to, you know, providing services to that kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Labels are not supposed to drive services. But the problem is, I think we all know that, you know, bureaucracy kicks in, right? And would come along and say, okay, state, uh, if you use these different categorizations of kids, even if uh, you use a category like these or some other disability category, if this child has uh, issues around blindness and vision impairment, deafness or hard of hearing or deaf blindness, uh, even if they're not wearing that label around their neck as their primary disability, you will evaluate them and as a result of proper evaluation, serve them in accordance with their blindness, deafness, or deaf blindness needs. Now, there are some states that would say, you know, that's not such a bright, uh, bright, uh, fancy new idea. We do that down here all the time. Our friends in Texas tell us that a lot. And they may very well be right, though I think there isn't any state, any jurisdiction in this country where the, you know, where, where that's, you know, universally true for all the kids that are there in that state. But you know how the people in Texas are. They think they do everything right down there. And uh, since they're much bigger than me and wear much bigger boots, cowboy boots and hats, I'm not prepared to argue with them. Uh, The only point I would make is I I think, you know, the point of the Macy's bill is to say, we know with certainty that, that this business of labels and categorization is, has been allowed to thwart proper services uh, for kids, and so this bill basically does the legal, uh, you know, road clearing uh, and barrier removal to say no, no more of of that. Where we're going to let labels drive services. So that's kind of a universal thing that the bill does. But then when you start to get into, you know, what are some of the specific things it does in blindness? It probably, especially with this most recent version of the bill, probably the most significant thing is to make it crystal clear that uh, Braille for sure is absolutely key for education, the education of blind vision impaired kids. And so this bill takes, uh, to to, to borrow a phrase from the movie uh, uh, Spinal Tap, right? Where the guy said, this one goes to 11. Uh, This this bill goes to 11 because we, we actually have a provision on the books right now that's been part of IDEA since 1997, where the uh you know bra- where braille is considered the default that to all blind and visually impaired kids unless the IEP team determines that braille is for whatever reason inappropriate for uh, a student sorry i'm because it's so warm the windows are open and we've got now helicopters going over my place like i'm being invaded or either that or i'm in a mash episode i'm not sure okay um so hopefully we made it a little quieter now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Braille is absolutely important. But what we've done in this piece of legislation is to say, even if the evaluation shows that perhaps, uh, or even if most people around the IEP table were to say, we think now that we've evaluated this kid, we think maybe Braille is inappropriate for this child, that it, it's going to require the specific concurrence of the parent uh, to sign off on a withholding of braille instruction i mean do parents absolutely know better about their own kids more than 
professionals do. I mean, I know parents may feel that way. Uh, having had my own fierce uh, mama, who was, you know, in, insistent that yours truly be taught Braille, and I'm every day thankful for that. Mm-hmm. I expect she probably figures that she knows her kid best. I think there are plenty of professionals and others who could make the case that, as a matter of fact, no, parents may not necessarily, at least when it comes to this or some other, you know, educational service delivery kinds of things that, uh, you know, certainly people have who are doing this professionally may have a perspective that's equally as valid. We don't get into any of that. I think what we say in this version of the Macy Bill is Braille is so important that even if there is an evaluation that's done and most folks on the IEP team would say, you know, we, we're kind of coming to the conclusion that perhaps Braille is inappropriate for this kid, that uh, since the parent has to give their overall consent anyhow and you know, and be agreeable to whatever is done to and for their kid in the special ed context, that we're going to go out of our way to make a special uh, you know, effort to get their specific, the parent's specific consent uh, to withhold Braille. And if the parent doesn't, provide that, then by gosh, Braille is going to be provided. So it's yet one more protection uh, that we have for a blind child's right to receive Braille instruction. But we do that while also making it clear that kids who have remaining vision and the use of which may actually be of benefit to them as part of their ability to learn and you know participate and progress in the overall school curriculum, that a kiddo needs to have every advantage uh, that they uh, may have at their disposal. And so not only is Braille uh, a stupendously important thing to provide, but that uh, in defense of uh, a kid, that a parent should have legal tools in their toolbox to defend and fight for their kids' right for low vision devices and services. And so we do that as part of promoting something that the professional blindness community has long called the expanded core curriculum. And, uh, and so that expanded core curriculum, our ECC, involves a lot of things that if I recited them all, most people would say, well, of course, that's basic stuff. I mean, it's orientation mobility, assistive technology, career education, socialization, and you know, self-advocacy skills, sensory efficiency. Uh, gee, what am I forgetting? Orientation, I don't know if I said orientation and mobility. Uh, the full array of services that we know blind and visually impaired kids need if they are going to have a successful educational experience. So the Macy bill comes along and says, not only is Braille absolutely imperative, but we also want to make sure that all of the things that a kiddo may need are going to be available to a child as a matter of, of right, certainly to be evaluated for their need and the, ben- the benefits of those uh, instruction in those various areas, but then also, you know, for heaven's sake, get it, get it to them. So those are some of the major things that the Macyville will do. I'll just flag swath up maybe one or two other things that, because they are smaller, in mm-hmm. themselves may ordinarily be overlooked. But honestly, I think they show why this version of the Macyville is so significant. So for the first time, we have language that makes it clear that states are supposed to have very specific blindness-related provisions pertaining to services provided to infants and toddlers who may have some kind of vision loss or some degree of blindness or low vision and the services to their 
those young infants and toddlers' uh, families. So the so-called early intervention services, which, you know, look, early intervention is being provided in various uh, states all over the place, including to blind and visually impaired kids. What isn't clear, just like what we've been talking about up till now, is that those states have a clear notion of what it really means to provide meaningful early childhood intervention to an infant or toddler and their families, you know, who experience vision loss. What does it really mean? What are the blindness specific related things and personnel that a state must ensure are available for these young, particularly young kids uh, and their families to make sure that they are going to be able to develop uh, as, uh, as, as meaningfully and as wonderfully as they can so that then they can move on to the next level of their uh, education. So the bill spells out what that's about and essentially says, just like we have an expanded core curriculum for you know, preschool and K through 12, we want to make sure that you that, that we have ECC-like uh, services and skills training available for particularly young kids. So there is that. Uh, for many years since all of us worked our little fingers off as part of the 2004 reauthorization of IDEA, the last time IDEA was reviewed and approved, which is just unbelievable. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, at that time we got uh, language included in the law that said that um, we need to make sure that textbooks and instructional materials are made available in the appropriate format and, you know, right on time. And so you know, lots of things came of that, including the creation of a national te- a standard for publishers of such materials to use so that when they produce their electronic files, that they are a lot more convertible, uh, readily, you know, renderable in various specialized formats. And we also created a central repository for all of those materials so that people don't have to hunt down all the individual files, that there is a central source to make that happen. And the American Printing House for the Blind manages that. But funny enough, uh, and funny in quotes, it's pretty sad and frustrating, actually, because those provisions were added to the national special education law and not a generic education law, the U.S. Department of Education has interpreted for years that uh, blind and visually impaired kids who want to make use of those materials that are produced uh, must have IEPs. They must have, you know, must be a special ed kid, and they will not be able to make use of those uh, materials that APH makes available if they if they are not specifically special ed kids. If they're just kiddos with disabilities who happen to be going to public school, even if they're on a so-called Section 504 plan, which is Section 504 is a section of the Rehabilitation Act. And mm-hmm. if you're on a 504 plan, you know, this is where a kiddo may not be getting specialized instruction as a special ed child, but they still get reasonable accommodations and might even get provided technology, even if you're one of those kids. So for sure, they know that you have a disability. If you don't have an IEP, the Department of Education says it's illegal for that kid to be given access to the instructional materials that APH makes available under the 2004 requirements we put in place, which is just not at all what we ever contemplated. It's outrageous. So this bill, yeah. And so this bill comes along and says no more. Uh, It specifically uh, uh, makes it crystal clear, does the legalese version of stop it uh, and says, uh, (laughs) if you're a kid that's under, whether you have an IEP or not, if you're a kid with a disability receiving public education in this country, 
you are most assuredly entitled to use those materials. So there are some fixes like that that we've also built into this bill, including clarifying things about uh, making sure that monies that the Department of Education makes available to uh, prepare new you know, teachers of students with vision impairments or TVIs, that those uh, grant monies are not simply to provide teachers who can teach Braille, but of course, are, uh, it in fact says that those monies are to be used to encourage the preparation of teachers who know how to work with kids who may have ocular vision impairment like I do as an LCA kid, uh, but uh, people who have so-called brain-based vision impairment, what a lot of people would refer to as cortical vision impairment or cerebral vision impairment. Uh, and and so, in, because there are people who would argue that's the largest population these days of kids who are blind or visually impaired, people who don't have something up with their eyeballs, but they are functionally uh, experiencing vision loss because of this developmental disability that we refer to sometimes as CVI. So, you know, these are things which individually are pretty important for the populations or the constituents who care about them. But some of these things, you know, might be seen as sort of smaller initiatives, but we thought since now is the time to refresh this bill and get more people on board with it, uh, now would be a good time to, not, of all the, as things have developed over the years and we've got a better sense of, what the real needs are. Uh, these are some clarifications that we wanted to make. And there are a couple of others like that, that are, I mean, we're talking about maybe footnote size things, but again, for the people who it affects, it's pretty important, right? There are people who, uh, kids who are in schools who refuse to allow their orientation mobility instructor to take them off campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you know, they hide, they hide behind, you know, well, we don't have insurance for that, or we've liability, got liability, right? Right, the liability issues, or you know, this is a wild and crazy 21st century we live in, and for everyone's concerns <laughs> about, you know, uh, kiddo riding alone in a car with their instructor, we're not going to have mm-hmm. that. It's just we're mm-hmm. just uh, so so to minimize risk, we're not going to do it. And the Macyville comes along and says, look, orientation mobility if you don't understand it properly means that you are able to provide that service and that it be that you can, that the student can exercise uh, their orientation and mobility skills at home, at school and in community. And so if a, if a school is going to, or a state uh, district is going to get our federal tax dollars to support their special education needs, then you better believe that they're going to have to do whatever they need to do to ensure that orientation and mobility can be provided at home, school and community or else potentially they're they're putting their uh, uh, special ed dollars at risk. So, you know, there and, and I could give you another half dozen things, which a little podcast like this, uh, it would make it too long and someone would edit it out. So since I don't want to be edited out, I'll just stop right there. But I would say all of those kinds of things, you know, add up to and build on those sort of major things that we've been doing for a long time now in the Macyville, which make it really the most comprehensive special ed uh, proposal that we've had in a generation really oh wow so the push is up there's something big push then to get get these provisions in the yep. when it happens yep yeah yep and i think you know uh i i've been as we've gone along for years now people have said to me half jokingly somewhat teasingly <laughs> but every now and then not uh not infrequently with a little bit of a challenge like you know good grief you're a, you're a one-trick pony uh, with this Macy thing. 
you know, when are you going to give it up? Or, and, and it's sort of like, well, we, we, you know, because it's taking too long and Mark, honestly, we're frustrated hearing about it. And my response to that is if you're frustrated hearing about it, just imagine if you were, you know, one of the bill's parents, uh, you know, proud parents, uh, like me and a couple of our colleagues in the deafness world who help, you know, put this together and, 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 you know, and you sort of you can't get it out of the proverbial starting gate because of all of the political hangups and whatever in in Congress and also among a lot of, uh, you know, cross disability sort of advocates who, as I say, for not unrealistic or whatever unreasonable reasons have concern about amending IDEA. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you really have to just hang in there for the long haul and Either one of two things, I guess one of three things can happen. Uh, maybe Congress will eventually get around to thinking about opening up to one degree or another IDEA for some changes. Uh, or if they don't, there will be other opportunities as various other education-related bills come down the, the pike uh, to, to move some things, even though it's not a full-blown IDEA reauthorization. Maybe there'll be some other opportunities along the way. Uh, or the third possibility, of course, was just the depressing one, which is there will not be an IDA reauthorization of any kind any time in our lifetimes, and yeah. no more will there be special education, uh, you know, related or potential vehicles on which we could do some of this stuff. And and then you say, well, what do you do then? Uh, not only do you cry a little bit, but then you also sort of redouble your efforts to work with as we are now. Uh, working with the U.S. Department of Education to try to, on the regulatory level, try to get them to change as much as we think we we or they can get away with. And I don't mean that in any kind of nefarious way, but I mean, anyone who's worked with a, uh, a, a, you know, a federal department knows that, you know, it's a bureaucracy. And by definition, most of their role there is to sort of hold the line on things, you know, you're, no, no great uh, revolution is ever really going to start at the regulatory level because it's just by nature, it's a very uh, conservative, small C, you know, uh, environment in which to try to make some change. Sure, you can, you can do it if you've got real champions and advocates and go-getters inside the department and if other stars align to make that happen. Now, as it turns out, we do have a, a I would say probably over the course of the last 30 years, since I've been familiar with all of this, we probably have never had a more friendly United States Department of Education in terms of career staff there uh, that we can turn to who we know, who frankly come from our blindness or deafness fields. Uh, but the truth is, you know, it's an enormous bureaucracy. And even with having the most number of friends we've had there for a while, uh, it's to say it's an uphill battle is is really to be an understatement. So you know we do we we try to take as much opportunity as we can, and uh, wherever it exists. But that's why I'm so grateful that ACB is you know a primary partner. It's our co co uh, co conspirator here in the blindness system, along with the organization that I serve as an officer, AER, the membership professional membership association in the field. So it's the it's the two of us you know, who are the principal leads for blindness. And of course, then we've got two organizational leads in the deafness world. So again, our friends at National Association of the Deaf and the Deaf Schools Group. 
And then a couple of the groups uh, from the parents and other advocates of the deaf blindness world who were sort of the, uh, you know, six uh, amigos or whatever uh, would be a, a, an appropriate way to think about it. But it's that those six groups are really kind of taking the lead and committed to getting something done wherever we can. Absolutely. And you mentioned getting a re- re- regulatory um, and yep. getting that in there. Um, so Ed, Ed is planning on losing 504 and no proposed rulemaking for amending 504 um, yep. this year. So I imagine if we push some of the same provisions in that in that um, NPRM. Yeah, there may very well be uh, hooks that we can latch onto there, especially around some of these things. I mean, I think the department has been, you know, the, the department's general counsel and other people have already weighed in on this textbook nonsense of theirs. And I don't expect that <clears throat> we'll have much traction on changing that through a regulatory process, though, as you point out, if there was ever a way to do it, it would be, you know, since the department is saying, yes, we're going to revise our Section 504 rules. I mean, it's another opportunity to weigh in with public comment to say that the way they've interpreted it is, we believe, outrageous, or at the very least, you know, can't they recognize the harm that it does? And even though IDEA may not permit it as they understand the legal writing within IDEA from 2004, don't they maybe have other authority that they can use uh, to make it happen? So yeah, there may very well be other ways in which the department can help us out. And I want to give a little shout out here to our friends in Congressman Cartwright's office and also Senator Markey's office, who, uh, and I think you know this already yourself, Swatha, but you know, even just this week, uh, invited you and Clark and I and a few, uh, well, I guess that's it. That's our little triumvirate there that we're just focused on blindness at the moment to think about what letters the congressman and our champions for the Macy bill might write to the secretary of education and the department staff as a congressional inquiry to say, look, we stand behind the Macy bill. We care about it. We want to see that passed, but we think department, you could tackle some of these items now through some policy guidance and other changes. And so we're going to be working with Congressman Cartwright to, you know, do that advocacy work with the department, hopefully as they lead it, especially with some good, strong, uh, you know, again, Democrats in Congress speaking to a democratically controlled Department of Education. Hopefully the department will see that as a, you know, a a friendly uh, request and um, maybe we can make some headway there. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully soon. Um, hopefully you can have something done by this year, hopefully. That would be nice. Um, yeah, it'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm um, kind of shifting gears from like this, you know, you know, the sad, depressing part of it, like the just like not having adequate education education of blind of blind kids. Um yeah. who are who are the Bill's namesakes? What like who are Ansel Macy and Oz Coxwell? Well, I'll start with Alice Cogswell. So, of course, these are figures from our history, and Alice Cogswell has been uh, singing in the choir invisible for a very, very long time, but she was the uh, first deaf girl to be formally educated in the United States at a school for deaf children, which I believe is called the uh, the American School of the Deaf. And now I'm embarrassed. Is it in Connecticut or in New York? 
uh, gee, uh, <laughs> it's a shame we can't edit these things out. But in any case, in the Northeast, and, 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 and there, it's a wonderful institution, even though I can't remember exactly where it is. But the point is, uh, Alice Cogswell was, you know, she has a little bit of a, 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 a soft spot for her is in the heart of any educator in the deafness and heart of hearing world since, you know, being the first deaf girl to formally uh, receive education uh, from a deaf school in the United States. It's sort of, you know, there's always those people who uh, you know, break down barriers or are the trailblazers. So that's who Alice Cogswell was. And of course, Annie Sullivan, her formal name, Ann Sullivan Macy, uh, was Helen Keller's beloved teacher for many, many years. And uh, not only, you know, a, uh, a, a, a late close friend, lady friend, but as a professional, essentially served as Helen's, uh, what we would call today an intervener or a support services person or an SSP, given that Helen was both deaf and blind. And so what Helen referred to Annie Sullivan simply by the word teacher and that, you know, Helen even at one point is quoted as saying that there's no more precious word to her than the word teacher. And that teacher meant it wasn't just a name for the teacher who worked for her, but, you know, became this almost mantra and, you know, a word for her that was akin to mother or best friend or, you know, that, that, that there in her mind was she had no, higher praise uh, to offer uh, to to Annie Sullivan than to refer to her as teacher. So that word for her came, you know, took on an almost mystical importance. And, and, and you can understand that, that someone that obviously Helen met, I think at the age of six, as I re recall, and then who, you know, really helped Helen, who was a, a stubborn little diva, uh, uh, because you know this colossal brain uh, inside a a body that was could not hear or see, and um, and and so and so Annie Sullivan helped to move that process along to the point where Helen uh, was was revealed essentially to the world as having this tremendous brain and and heart, and turned into a, just a remarkable and in many cases controversial uh, advocate who was in some ways decades ahead of her time and in in some ways that were controversial for helen uh very much in line with the most controversial or edgy uh uh you know uh, uh sort of social issues of the day i mean helen in the what was it in the 20s i think was an advocate for eugenics for example a position that she would later you know grow to be embarrassed that she supported especially after uh the whole experience of Nazism and, and World War II, uh, where, you know, the obvious implications of that uh, were re shockingly revealed to the whole world. But, but you know, that's, that's who Helen was, and Annie was very much right there with her in the thick of it all. Um, and um, so we thought that naming the bill after the first deaf young woman to be educated formally in the United States and then someone who was a teacher uh, of, uh, you know, a, such a notable figure like HK uh, would make for great namesakes for the bill because it is the bill is truly meant to be a uh, game changer for students uh, and young people, but also for uh, systems change and the professionals who work uh, with these 
students for sure. So that that's why we chose those names. Yeah, absolutely. Some great pioneers in the deaf and deaf and um, vision loss space. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you know, for someone like Helen Keller, uh, you know, obviously, even though the name Annie Sullivan is essentially there in our in our bill name, one can't think of Ann Sullivan Macy without thinking of Helen Keller, and obviously Helen Keller being herself uh, someone who was uh, deaf blind. So it makes sense that then deaf blindness is part of this picture as well. A thing that a lot of people forget, though, is that Annie Sullivan herself was someone with low vision. And uh, and so, you know, again, we want to make sure that this legislation um, reflects the diversity of the population of kids who are blind, deaf and deaf blind, that, which is why the categorization is such a, a nefarious, you know, whatever problem, because uh you know, one, those labels have a tendency to pigeonhole people, even if the bureaucracy works as well as it should. Uh, you know, people sort of get lumped into categories and they assume that they know everything about you simply because you say you're blind or low vision. They thought, oh, you're one of those. And then they have this little cookie cutter set of solutions and hoops for you to jump through instead of treating every child individually, which is why. Uh, again, kind of nitpicky stuff as far as the language in the bill, but we go out of our way in this version of the Macy Act to really clarify what proper evaluations are, uh, which is to say they need to be uh, widely recognized, substantially research-based, you know, and, uh, and widely deployed tools. I mean, I, I think a lot of us are all in favor of, you know, let's uh, innovate, let's think outside the box, and let's mm -hmm. also you know, be prepared to challenge assumptions. But what we're not going to do is experiment on kids and for sure what we're not going to do uh, through the special education system, that is. But what we're not going to do is adopt ways that we evaluate kids that already stack the deck against their ability to, to do, to, to make the use out of whatever abilities they have. And sometimes in blindness, you know, uh, here's a, a news flash, not... Uh, so there are people in our field that like to uh, think that they know what blind folks need better than the blind folks themselves or their parents or their educators. And mm -hmm. so they assume, well, you know, just because you have remaining vision, you don't want to be doing that. Uh, that's a that's a crutch. Or if you allow a if you allow an educational system to make use of a child's remaining vision, then that uh, provision of Braille is going to suffer. And that child is not going to fully embrace their identity, if you will, or their, you know, abilities as a person who is truly blind or visually impaired, because you're essentially trying to emphasize sight over blindness. And, you know, our sort of response to all of that, those of us who've been principal advocates for this bill is uh, <clears throat> don't lecture us about that. Everyone is individual. Number two. Some of mm -hmm. us have gone through that exact experience. So you're not telling us about things that we don't know could happen. And there are certainly ugly historical, you know, and many of them, not just a few, where you know years ago, you'd have a lot of people who would say, oh, you don't want to go down the Braille road. You, you know, it's that you're declaring, you're, 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 you know, it's a defeatist attitude. You fact, should really make yeah. use of right. And, and the truth is, there may very well be people who have that point of view, but we are not going to be slamming those doors of opportunity in the face of kids, their parents, and their educators 
when that child may very well benefit from Braille, low vision, and any other thing that the IEP team and their parents think that child may need. And and they need that flexibility to make those decisions. We're not going to have the sort of philosophical stuff driving uh, the discussion so much that that interferes with the individuality of every kid. So that's what the Macy Bell tries to do. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so how can folks learn more, learn more about the bill and about um, what the bill does and how to get out of your life? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing that, of course, I want to make sure is if people are listening to this podcast and they probably know all too well that the American Council of the Blind is a rock star blindness advocacy organization <laughs> to whom they can turn for all of their public policy needs and uh so I would say to anyone listening, do whatever Clark and Swatha tell you to do. That's number one. Uh, and, you know, and so for sure, visiting the ACB website, I'm sure, is a fine place to go. Y- you can also visit a site that's called CogswellMacyAct.org. And I'll just quickly spell it. It's, it's exactly what you would expect. All one word, no dashes, no unicorns, zebras, whatever in there. It's C O G S as in Sam. W E L L so Cogswell and Macy M A C Y and Act A C T so Cogswell Macy Act.org. I will tell you if you visit there right now, you'll see a nice lovely message that says, Stay tuned for developments and build numbers in 2023. And that's because that website needs desperately to be updated based on this new uh, bill that has just been introduced. This site I've just told you, the Cogswell Macy Act.org is a website that is generally maintained by volunteers, mostly out of the uh, deaf schools group. But I expect that we will be jazzing that website up quite a bit in the you know days and weeks and months to, to, to come. And AER and my colleague, who is our executive director at AER, Lee Sonnenberg, and his staff uh, would be partnering with the staff at the deaf schools group and other volunteers to hopefully you know keep that website Moving forward, I think we're you know so excited about the fact that we finally now have a new bill with these updated provisions that we're going to have to update some things there. So I, you know, just keep keep it under your hat that CogswellMacyAct.org is a fine place to go. It has been a great hub. If you go there now, you'll see uh, previous press releases and and things like that about the bill. A lot of that stuff that has been happening in the past is not you know it's not old or dead or it doesn't apply anymore. No, it's all of that stuff is there. What we've done is added uh, some updates to the bill, which of course we need to account for there, but that would be a fine place to go generally, but really and truly, I mean, an ACV member or friend, your first, second and third stop is with the staff and the communications vehicles of ACV because uh, as far as I'm concerned, nobody does it better in the consumer world. So Nice. Thanks for the plug, York. Absolutely. Um, Well, I'm a life member of ACB. I can't help it. You know, it's uh, what can I say? Yeah. Um. So I imagine that the CosmoMacy.org site will also have like advocacy resources for you to use as you got from Congress had that big call-in day that you had back in 2013, right? Yep. We'll probably do some things like that. Uh, It's CosmoMacyAct.org, and if you Um, go to (laughs) CosmoMacyAct.org. then you'll see things like uh, 
we we have Twitter resources there, so you know the various hashtags that people can use. Uh, when did we do this? Was it last? Yeah, I guess it was last year, last summer. I think in June of 2022, we did a sort of a Twitter uh, thing, right? A you know blast day. I don't. It was pretty successful, for, and for for who we are, and by that I don't mean to keep putting us down. I just think people need to appreciate that, relatively speaking, let's say to other disability groups in the country. I mean, blindness, deafness, and deaf blindness. That's why we got to stick together because while there are more blind, deaf, and deafblind kiddos than people realize, even if you understand the true size of those populations, you, it's still so small in comparison to the overall number of kids with disabilities. I think the number today is about seven and a half million kids who have uh, disabilities who are, you know, they have IEPs. These are special ed kids nationally. And if you add up our kiddos were maybe you know 300,000 or so of 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 that three certainly no more than 400,000 total which you know is is not an inconsequential number of people but when you're stacked up against kids with other let's say physical disabilities i mean learning disabilities is a huge category there are some categories where maybe the the sheer numbers aren't eclipsing of us in a in a major way but they're certainly bigger than we are but they also get a lot of attention and therefore a lot of the funding and the energy. Uh, so I think about our friends in the autism world, uh, for sure. Uh, a, a disability worthy of all the attention and the money that they get. But the reality mm-hmm. of it is they, they, they get it. And anytime that you have various disability groups that do get that attention and funding, it makes it hard when you get your 15 minutes with a junior member of Congress's staff person who has a thousand meal meals, that's funny, a thousand meetings a day uh, on all kinds of issues. And you're one of, you know, a gazillion groups that might go into that person to talk about special education issues. It's really hard to hold their attention. And so, you know, when, when we do things like Twitter days or whatever, are we generating tens of thousands of tweets or whatever we're supposed to call them now, uh, now that it's no longer Twitter, but X, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, it's it's hard. On the other hand, for our community, we do pretty well, and we do a decent job of the turnout. And so, anyway, if you go to CogsholeMaciac.org, you'll see resources there for that uh, kind of stuff. And I think links to a number of videos that have been done over the course of time. So uh, it's a decent it's a decent resource if you're interested in the activities of the overall coalition supporting supporting the bill. But just like we in AER will likely be doing our own, you know, uh, dedicated web presence and things for AER members and friends, because our advocacy, of course, is going to focus on the things that are most relevant to the delivery of of the most appropriate professional services that the bill talks about. I think, you know, likely ACB is the best spot for people to go to uh, to make sure that they understand the consumer, most consumer relevant uh, stuff going on. Absolutely, of course. Thanks. Thank you, Mark, for being here and talking to us about the CMA. You, you, you couldn't keep me away with a sharp stick. I, I, you know, when it comes to this, <laughs> I, I would I would do it day or night, uh, for sure. And I hope that I will not have to do it day or night for another, whatever it's been, 10 years. I, I, it would be a labor of love. But uh, like I said earlier, if you don't think it's frustrating for those of us who have poured our little heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into this over the years that it's that 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 Congress hasn't you know haven't gotten the traction there. 
not really at all at our own fault, but because of circumstances. I mean, it can be discouraging, but, you know, I think anybody who listens to this show and, you know, the, the work and, and follows Swapo, the work that you and Clark do all the time, and you know this, doing this professionally, not only for ACB, but participating in the wider, you know, disability policy world. I mean, things, successes come very infrequently, no matter, even if you are at a hundred, operating at 110%, you know, at your game level and everything goes well, the successes come far and few between and they don't happen every day. And sometimes you're at a minimum working for years and years on the same thing. So while it is frustrating that it's been so long in a certain, from a certain point of view, uh, it's to be expected. And the worst thing that any of us could do as frustrating as it is, is to, is to give up because about the time that you throw in the towel is, the way the crazy universe works might very well be exactly the time when doors of opportunity open. Yep, exactly. Yep. Well, thanks, Mark. And hopefully work will pay off at some point. Absolutely. (laughs) All All right. right. And couldn't couldn't do it without you all. So really, really appreciate the partnership. It's great. Likewise. Um, So thanks. Thank you, Mark Reger, for being here. Um, My pleasure. And as always, if you, if, if you'd like to, hear, like to learn more about ACB, you can go to acb.org or um, email me and Clark at advocacy at acb.org. Um, thanks to everyone listening on your favorite podcast player or on ACB Media Network. Um, and just like with everything, I feel like with all the policy parties we have, we have... Um, in Congress and and in the government and just in everyday life, as always, keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.